I spent my first decade out of college basically trying to live my life based on external things. If people like, do they like me? Are they impressed by this thing? Is this doing well? Has it received awards? And then I turned 30. I came out. I got divorced. My whole life turned upside down. But I could not be happier that that happened because I think I had to fall on my face to kind of realize like, hey, I was all the times I thought I was being great and perfect. I so was not being great and perfect. And, you know, it's it's good to try to be, you know, the best version of yourself, but it's not always going to happen. And if you hold yourself to that standard, you're going to hold everybody else to way too high of a standard as well. smiling at me nothing but blue skies do I see blue birds singing the song nothing but blue birds all day long I don't know about you but when I was growing up in my teens, my late teens, my early 20s, I had a super skewed point of view on what business was all about, what working was all about, because everywhere I looked were articles about entrepreneurs raising tons of money or uh, just celebrities in the business world. Or it was my parents that were saying, you know, be a doctor, be a lawyer, um, go to work every single day and sit in an office. But that's a super limited and incredibly unrealistic view of the world. The the options that you're exposed to are just so limited. And so many of us end up finding this safe place professionally pretty early and staying there because it's safe. Imagine if you actually had the power of seeing a spectrum of choices in front of you, that power of visibility where you suddenly had the ability to see what other people were doing, what options you had, all the different directions that you could really go, it would totally open things up for you. Well, that's what we talk about in this week's conversation with Design Sponge's Grace Bonney. She started Design Sponge as a blog, and it turned into a new media brand with over 1 million readers a day. It's, it's even been declared a, a Martha Stewart living for the millennials by the New York Times. And while building Design Sponge, Grace has dedicated herself to helping creative female entrepreneurs with national meetups, a column, and now her new book, which we talk about. And she, by the way, created in just two months called In the Company of Women. It tops the New York Times bestseller list already. And it features one-on-ones with hundreds of women, small business owners, especially in the creative field. Grace stopped by during her book tour. We had a super fun, content-packed conversation covering everything from whether softness is a weakness, especially as a woman, the power of seeing the spectrum of options in front of you, and how to use life's challenges as an advantage. This is Grow Big Always. I'm Sam Lawrence. week was it last week maybe two weeks ago i had wim hoff over here do you know who that is no, that's he's the but a very good name isn't it yeah yeah he's dutch he's the guy that he's called the ice man he's the guy that can mentally regulate his body temperature <gasps> oh my gosh i've read about him yeah oh my goodness like in ice he has like 29 yeah. world records yeah. or something like that 
And it was nuts. He's running all over the house, chasing, doing push-ups and working out in between, you know, recording sessions. Yeah. It was myself and uh, Chris Ryan and him and this guy named Stanley Krippner. Anyway, we were talking about the book, uh, what was it, Anti-Fragile? Do you know that book? No, I don't. Same guy that wrote Black Swan. Oh, okay. Okay. No. All right. Well, this is really interesting because I thought this would be kind of a cool place for us to start talking. Sure. I'd love to get your perception, uh, your perspective on this. But the idea of the book from, and by the way, I haven't read it either. So here <laughs> okay, I am. I feel much better. <laughs> yeah, talking about it like I'm an expert. But uh, anti-fragile is the idea where, like, so if you took something that was fragile and you stick, stuck it in a box and you kicked it, it would break. Mm-hmm. And if you put, like, a hammer in a box, it is so durable, it's so kind of stable that if you kick the box, obviously it's not going to affect it. Yeah. Anti-fragile is the idea that when you put something in, in, in a, you know, when, when you kick something or when you put duress on something, it gets stronger, kind of like mm, muscles. Got it. Right? Mm-hmm. So most of us, I think, in our life, we're scared about being fragile. So mm. we go to this kind of stable place of just being super, 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 like avoiding anything that could hurt. Yes. Evolutionary tendencies. <laughs> right. Whereas some people figure this thing out where they're just like, you know, I, if I can in controlled ways be vulnerable enough. And Carol Dweck, who, who's been on the show too, has has talked about the growth mindset. It's kind of the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like, you're going to, you're going to kind of put yourself in an environment where the outside world is going to come in and you're going to have to deal with that stress. And and it'd be interesting because you started Design Sponge like at the risk. Well, I don't know. You didn't start it, but where you really started getting going was in the recession, right? In 2008. Is that it right? Just, I started in 2004. Okay. So I had a few heyday years of things going great. <laughs> <laughs> and then the bottom just dropped out. Aha. Yeah. Yeah. But I think I have, I, I, I think in terms of thinking of like anti-fragile, I, I think that that is that is a hundred percent the way that I live, mm. but just not intentionally. I think that like life has just kind of handed me a series of things. I mean, life has handed me a lot of privilege as well, but it's also handed me some difficult sort of pivots and changes along the way. And I, at a certain point, I realized these things, you know, hopefully are are not going to permanently damage me. And if I don't choose to see them as opportunities to grow and get stronger. I'm really just missing an opportunity here. So right. like at the beginning of, of this year in January of 2016, I was diagnosed with type one diabetes, which mm-hmm. is terrifying. And I had spent like three or four months literally just like lying on the ground, crying and freaking out. And then I had this moment of like, wait a minute, I wish this wasn't the reason I'm learning these lessons, but I'm actually learning a lot from this new way of life. And it's forced me to be so present and to prioritize things in a way that I never could or never chose to before Hmm. and and ultimately it it was this lesson and like okay these things that are difficult and terrifying are actually they are so opportunities in disguise and you know i i don't wish type one on anybody but it, it it really for me has been this moment to get things in order to figure out what i'm good at and to just let the rest go yeah but that that's like the difference is the fact that you just said that you you come at that at some point, right? We all need a recovery when when duress is put on us. There's like, right? Same thing with muscles. You work a muscle out, you got to rest. But what you're saying is, is that potentially, I'm putting words in your mouth, but like you are approaching these things going, wait a minute, let me, let me, be open to what what's happening here and try to get stronger from it really 
Yeah, I mean, if you don't, you get really jaded. And yeah. I think I, I mean, I'm a, I'm still a New Yorker, I guess. I've, I've lived almost half my life in New York now, and I, I think that I sort of wore that jadedness as a badge of pride for a while. I think, as especially if you live in New York City, I think having that edge is something that's like, oh, I'm officially a New Yorker. I'm, right. I'm really I'm kind of an <laughs> asshole about everything. And and it's like, yeah, that that's cool. And I remember thinking at some point like oh why do, why do i view softness or vulnerability or sensitivity as a weakness it's mm. not and but i think living in new york you do see all of those traits as real weak moments and it only it literally took me like 3 months of my wife and i moved to the hudson valley which is still very much an associated bubble of new york city <laughs> but right. um, we live in a very very small farming town where the a large number of the population lives below the poverty line and it's been a, a sort of a very different environment for us to be in and it only took me a few months to get out of that new york bubble and realize how important it was to be a little bit softer hmm. and I, I think allowing myself to have soft edges as well as hard ones has been a very important learning lesson for me well let's talk about that for a minute because your new book um which i found by the way fascinating turns out my wife now we have two copies of it because <laughs> i got one from you and then my wife went to your reading last night um but in the company of women where it's what is it a hundred small business mm-hmm. um women and i was talking to my wife after the book reading and i was asking her a little bit about because she's also starting a, um, a business right now and i was asking her a little bit about it and she was talking about how and this was her perspective but i want to hear your perspective that Starting something like a, a small business, especially a creative business or any business, because that's all creative, as a female is, is in her mind a little bit tougher because our culture in the West is all about, hey, you are softer, you're about pleasing other people, this is what it is to be a woman, so to actually please yourself or pursue your own passions is tough, like it's super tough to kind of get off Get, get away from that mindset and realize that you have the power to do that. What did you learn in having all of these conversations with women? And does that map to kind of what you heard? Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting. So I, I would say the biggest lesson I learned from interviewing everybody was that the concept of work-life balance is a complete and total myth. <laughs> There's no magic pill. No, I, I thought writing this, I was like, oh, I'm going to come out of this with the secret. I'm going to know it. I'm going to have like a year jump on everybody. It's going to be great. (laughs) And then, you know, I think about maybe like 40 or 50 people in, I was talking to women who've been in their careers for 40 plus years Mm. who were like, oh no, I still have days where I feel totally out of balance or out of whack and I don't have enough time with my family or I have too much time. It's sort of all this back and forth. And Mm. then someone sat me down and just said like, you know, the reason that is is because life just keeps moving forward. And Mm. if you're not moving forward, then you're kind of missing the point. And I think the idea of, of work-life balance is very much about stasis and about staying still. Well, and it's back to that hammer in the box. Yes. And I think, and I, I mean, I think all people is a sort of a survivalist tendency is to want to find that safe place and just stay there. That's right. As long as you possibly can. And I think for me, working on the internet has been one giant lesson on how that's impossible. And I think everything about my being fights that, you know, need to change and evolve constantly. But hmm. I am getting better at understanding that. And I think hearing this over and over again, I mean, literally like 107 times from different people was just kind of the reassurance I didn't even know I needed. And so I came away really like putting my shoulders down, cutting myself a hell of a lot more slack Mm. and just realizing nobody has it figured out. And I think women in particular 
are expected to be a lot of things that are contradictory. We're supposed to be soft and people pleasers and these things that, that for some women are innate qualities. Right. But then we're also told that those are bad things and that that makes us soft bosses or, you know, too like we're emotional. Pushed, yeah, too emotional. Too, and I mean, I've talked to women in this book who were saying like, oh, I just like I beat myself up because I had this meeting and I cried. And I'm like, yeah, there are some situations where, you know, crying in general it can can make you vulnerable with somebody who might take advantage of that. But it's not because you're a woman and it's not necessarily because you're crying. It's because you're in a situation with someone who's looking for a way to take advantage of you. Right. And that's the problem. Right. So I think there's 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 sort of a, a contradiction there because I think a lot of women are starting to own and be happy about the fact that these qualities that maybe they're being told are not desirable business qualities actually do work for them. And I think a lot of people who work for women really enjoy working for people who do care about them and don't feel the need to sort of be mean or be overly harsh because that is what a boss is. I think there are many different ways to be a boss. Do you think there really is a, a gender difference? I mean, April, who you just met, does think there is a little bit of a gender difference in terms of starting starting a business. Do you think there really is a bigger challenge for women than there is for men or any other anywhere you are else on that gender spectrum? Yeah, not a shadow. Of the, yeah, I have absolutely no doubt that uh. that's 100% true. And I think it becomes more true, actually, when you leave the creative community and mm. you go into traditional business or tech fields. I mean, you can look at the stats of who gets VC money and who doesn't. Right. And is it- White I mean, dudes. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of white dudes and who already, most of whom have money. So it's it's an uphill battle. And I think I'm talking to women for the most part that aren't really looking for VC money or that's not kind of their traditional business model. I, I wanted to show that- Owning a business isn't just about being like an overnight success or getting a million dollars to do some startup. It can be about starting a side project that's a hobby. A and passion then, project. Exactly. And I think that to me, especially in the art and design community, so many projects start that way. They start as fun things someone does while they have a full-time job. And, you know, I think it's important to see that that's a path to business as well because it becomes less intimidating. I mean, when I like open up Forbes and Inc. and Fast Company and I read all those magazines and love them, but when I read them and then I read about somebody getting like $3 million in seed money and that's, <laughs> and I'm, that's never going to be my path. And so it makes me feel like, well, I have no business being in business, but I do. And so do so many other people. So I wanted to really like make that as visible as possible. Yeah. Are there some stories in that book that when you – I don't know, sometimes when you're walking down the street or you're I don't, getting ready in the morning or eating a meal or something, they just keep poking at you more than more than others? There are two in particular. Um, one is Liz Lambert, who runs a series of, of hotels in Texas, um, like the San Jose and, um, and El Cosmico and Marfa. And she's just this amazing sort of force of nature. And she really kind of hit me with one of her pull quotes from the book, which was um, basically that you stop obsessing over your first impression being perfect because that is never what people remember. What they actually remember is how you correct something when it doesn't go right. Mm. And she said, and obviously like in hospitality, there are a lot of, a lot of moments where, you know, if something doesn't go right, you need to make up for that or fix that or whatever the solution is. And I think women are really taught to be perfect and never make mistakes. And That's we're rarely, true. we're rarely taught how to apologize or how to own things and have that not be a big deal. And I've done – I used to have a radio show for years, and I did a couple episodes on, like, the power of, of saying I apologize or the power of just owning a mistake you did because yeah. not only does it – it just lets you be a fully formed human being. Who, it's freeing in a yeah, way. but it gives yeah. people around you – like, you need to mirror that behavior because I think the employees that I have for a long time, I set this standard of, like, I never take time off and I try to be perfect at all costs. And I think they felt the pressure to do that too. And then when I kind of let myself make mistakes and own them – 
it gave them permission to do the same thing. And, and we all make mistakes. So yeah, I think just letting that go was a really important thing because mm. working on the internet, there are no shortages of opportunities for me to have to apologize and yeah. and sort of take responsibility for things that I say. And so instead of seeing those as opportunities to avoid, I've started to see them as opportunities to express who I am and what I really believe in. Because when you're reaching out to somebody to say like, oh, hey, I'm sorry that this thing I said you know, left you feeling X, Y, Z, they get to know me more so than they would just reading my feed or reading my blog. And so, you know, those opportunities don't always go so well. Right. But sometimes they really do lead to meaningful conversations. So that that sort of little nugget that Liz Lambert left was really great. And then Mary Going, who lives here in the Bay, um, she runs a great, a suiting store called St. Herodin. And it's, it's sort of a, you know, genderless uh, fashion company for women who are like non-binary or trans women. Um, it's just, it's, or trans men. And it's just, it's an incredibly important business to have. And she was on my panel last night um, in San Francisco. And she said in the book that you have to be really bad at something in order, you have to be willing to be really bad at something in order to get good at it. And I think, I think women in particular are, you're just supposed to be perfect out of the gate Yeah. and nobody is. And so I think it was a nice moment to be like, oh, if you really love something, you got to get through all the clunky, bumpy years when you're still figuring it out. And if you don't want to live through those years, then it's probably not the right thing. I wonder if that's the one April said, I heard a quote last night saying something about failing your way up. Was that yeah, her? Yeah, that was either her or um, Preteen Mystery who runs Juhu Beach Club. Um, yeah, they both, they had a lot, a lot of great things to say about that. And yeah. my book was so, so much about kind of encouraging that vulnerability. And I didn't want to make a highlight reel of women who've done like, here, let's just all like, you know, raise our arms and victory. Those moments are in there too, because it's important to have that. But right. it's I, not learned, real life. <laughs> I learned a lot more from things going wrong. Yeah. And so I always ask people like, tell me about a time something went spectacularly wrong. And what did you learn from it? Yeah. And that's back again, back to that whole, how we started this conversation. It's that what you put in the box that you're going to kick and it's going to get a little stronger from it. The the interesting quote, by the way, that really stood out to me was in the very beginning of the book because it reminded me of one I'm super passionate about. And the quote was, uh, what is it? You can't be what you can't see. Mm-hmm. Who said that? Marion Wright Edelman. Yeah, near, near my office back in the early 90s, there was a huge poster that said, no vision, no decision. Mm. And there's a similar kind of piece, right? Like so much of, of how we... Uh, put the rudder on our lives has to do with the vocabulary we have of options in the world. And what's cool about this book is you've truly like created this, I don't know, uh, amazing vocabulary of different women who've started all of these different creative endeavors. So it really is something that can, when you start to go through it, you're like, wow, like you start going through those options. Yeah. I mean, this book had a very simple source of inspiration, which was just the power of visibility mm-hmm. and how the lack of it can lead to some really devastating consequences. And I look at my community, which is the art and design community in particular, and notice the lack of of people of color, the lack of visibility for LGBTQ people, for people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And you just think those people exist. They're out there and they're not getting written about. And but they are they are in some cases a smaller percentage of the of our overall population of artists and designers because there aren't a lot of people being visible. And it, that's not those people's fault. It's it's the media's fault for yeah. not sort of searching them out. And I was very much a part of that problem. And when I realized how much responsibility I had to just sort of give a platform to those voices, I realized like, well, there's going to be like a 16-year-old girl somewhere who opens up this page and sees somebody who looks like her or reminds her of her. 
and lets her know like, hey, there are a lot of possibilities out here for you. It's not just maybe the five things you've heard about right. in your school. And I was talking with um, a friend and she was saying she had just gotten back from um, visiting a friend's daughter who was unfortunately in the hospital who was born with disabilities and is, has frequent hospital visits as a result of that. And she was saying she brought her a copy of the book and she opened up to um, the page of the woman named Mary Verdi Fletcher, who is a choreographer. And Mary is a choreographer for a wheelchair ballet. And it's an incredible group of dancers, all of whom are in wheelchairs and have different levels of disabilities. And that has not stopped them one bit from being dancers and entertaining people and having a successful and profitable dance company. And this this, uh, daughter of her friends just burst into tears and was like, oh, I I didn't know I could be a dancer. Like that's (laughs) and that seems so simple, but it's just important to see somebody who looks like you and know that your options are not limited to the few things you've seen. That's what strikes me when I just flipping through the book because I always start with pictures because I like picture books. Me um, too. <laughs> <laughs> me too. And just yeah, the diversity of women in the book really just comes out at you as you just. It's a beautiful book, and when you flip through it, it's just you're like, wow, there really is just an amazing diversity here. Yeah, I wanted the story to be as clear in the pictures as it was in the text because I mean, I come from a visual community. I know right. most people aren't going to dive into the text right away, and there's not even that much text in this book. Mm-hmm. But I know people are just going to start with the pictures, and so. Sasha Israel, who took the majority of the photos for this book, just did an amazing job. And I chose her because she had taken my wife's portrait for a story. And I had never seen my wife, Julia, be that comfortable with a photographer. And it stood out in my head because I was like, this is someone who can come in and within five minutes make someone feel completely themselves. Boy, that's hard to do. And we were shooting five people a day. And so it was you needed to be able to come in, get comfortable with some honestly quite intimidating women. And so it was it was very important that she was a part of this process because yeah. it would have been very different. And you then, did them all in person too, right? The majority, yeah. Okay. We, had, we wrote the whole month, the whole book in two months, <laughs> so, which is nuts. But it was because I was supposed to write a totally different book and then I changed topics two months before my deadline because that's how I roll. And it, <laughs> and it worked, yeah. And, and I had, to, had a very understanding publisher who said like, I think this is a great idea. You can wow. do this, but you have two months. So it was like the greatest road trip ever. Oh my God. And we just went around to as many of the women as possible. Um, but I kind of liked that some of them happened via email or via phone because in a book, like you really do want to carefully consider your words because they're printed forever. It's not mm-hmm. like a blog where I can go back and edit and change the wording of something. Like yeah. This was a forever project. So... I'm I'm glad that some of them existed that way because I I do think it lets sort of the words have a greater weight. Yeah. Um. But it was it was just honestly a dream project to do and like the fact that it's out in the world and it's doing well and like this week we found out it made the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah. And you and your wife have bestsellers, was, right? She's my wife is amazing. What just, the hell? I, you guys are like the chips of bestsellers. <laughs> like remember Ponch and John from Chips? Maybe I'm dating myself. But anyway, <laughs> you guys are like <laughs> you guys both have dueling bestsellers. <laughs> it was a it was an exciting fall in the Bonnie Tertian household. It was. It Really, I'm so proud of her and her cookbook, Small Victories, has done so well. And we've both been like following the hashtags associated with our books. And it's just, it's been so great to watch. Like, we'll share, like, pass our phones back and forth. And I'll be like, look, somebody made the turkey meatballs from your book. Like, and then this couple came to meet her at her event and they were making one of her cake recipes as their wedding cake. Oh my and God. And so, like, there's that moment. And then she passed me her phone and someone was saying, like, I'm showing my like seven year old daughter your book. And she's like, what does that girl do? What does that girl do? And so, those moments, I think, mean both more to us than any like lists. But. Yeah, and it's funny the timeliness of, of it too, because here we are under this blanket Ooh. of <laughs> of of like here, you know, it's it's amazing. Actually, in a way, it's incredibly 
cool in a painful way, but the fact that there's been this shellac on so many civil rights issues, mm-hmm. you know, the Black Lives Matter movement coming out, you know, the last few years and now like with the Trumpocalypse happening mm-hmm. and having <laughs> and having just the conversation about women and in, yes. um in front and center in this country it almost feels like we're back to the suffrage thing going on in the late 1800s or something it's crazy i feel like i was just um before this i was having lunch with a friend of mine who i've known since i was in summer camp when i was 12 um anna sale who's the host of death sex and money on Mm. wnyc and we were talking about the way that obama's election i think in some ways kind of just shined a light on like just the tons of historic racism that still exists in america and it kind of all bubbled up to this boiling point and i think that's happening with sort of the internalized sexism in america as well and i I mean i don't think obviously the racism has gone anywhere i don't think the sexism is going anywhere anytime soon but i think that the fact that the combination of social media and the fact that we do have these more visible and diverse figures in government is is making people talk about things right and that can be very uncomfortable, but it's yeah. a very important conversation to have. Yeah, and boy, that's what's not been happening for so long, which is why there's a bubbling thing going, right? When you can't yeah. talk about stuff, you can't understand each other. Well, I think especially, I mean, in my community, which is like art and design, I think people use this community as an escape from that. And mm-hmm. so I do get a lot of pushback when I discuss things on my site that aren't just, you know, homes and chairs and whatever, and people don't want to talk about political issues. And I don't have overtly political conversations on Design Sponge, but for me, there is a direct connection between, say, you know, personal safety and your home. And especially when it comes to Black Lives Matter, which I've been a very vocal supporter of, I, I think that people feel very uncomfortable. And then I remind them like, hey, we're all writing about homes with the assumption that we can get home safely. Like, can you imagine what that would feel like to be someone who didn't have the assurance that even if they got pulled over on the way home, they would they wouldn't make it home safely? Like, that's something I don't think a lot of people think about, and it's something that I think about a lot. And I, I just don't see how you know the idea of home doesn't connect to a lot of social justice issues. So that's yeah. something we talk about a lot. But I'm eight or nine panels into the book tour now, and I've been having these conversations with women who just seems so so excited to be able to discuss these issues in a community that does sometimes have pretty surface level conversations. Mm-hmm. So it's been nice to dig a little deeper. Yeah, great point. I wonder what it's been like for you coming out of like if I if I was reading up about the fact you came from what the magazine world, right? Like the old school like magazine world, like yeah, print, the paper. Tail end of it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Before they all closed. Yeah. yeah stuff you used to hold um, like in paper. So uh, I'd be curious, do you see an arc happening where, you know, there you were in the print world and then all of a sudden you started this blog and then the blog took a life of its own and then now you've got this very digitally based business. What's the future of the print stuff? Because a lot of people like to throw it under the bus and go, it's dead, but it can't be, right? I don't at all. Um, I think every, I mean, everything, I mean, like if I've learned nothing from design, it's that everything is a cycle. And mm-hmm. I mean, I do think there are extenuating circumstances with print that, and you know, relate to the environment and just sort of the ethics behind sure. printing things on paper. But I actually started my blog a few years before I went into print magazines. And so I started, you know, a web-based business as a hobby with the intention of going to print as a safe space. And I was mm. like, well, one day I'll get a job in a magazine and I'll be set forever. And and I did and I got a job at Connie Nast and I kept I kept my I kept Design Sponge as an outside hobby. And then I worked at House and Garden and then two years into working there that closed and this then is I went, in 08 08 I went yeah. to Domino and then Domino closed and then I went to Craft Magazine and Craft Magazine closed and then I interviewed at Blueprint which was Martha Stewart's old design magazine had an interview 
didn't hear back, assumed I didn't get it, and then found out that closed right after I had my interview. Wow. So I think that I don't believe that print is dead. I just think that print in the way it previously functioned can't continue. Mm -hmm. I think the budgets that people had at those magazines were just outrageous. Oh, crazy. And I mean, I was at House and Garden and there was a a high profile celebrity they did a, a home tour with. And I remember looking at some of the invoice sheets that came in and they bought all new furniture for her just for the photo shoot and then gave it to her. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of furniture. And I mean, the blog budget I work on is just laughable. And in some days, I wish we had a bigger budget. But sometimes I'm like, no, I'm, I'm glad we're scrappy yeah. and small because yeah. we get things done without having to... to be creative. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, there's just there's a place for budgets that are big. I, I just don't think it's an everyday budget. And so I think when you've gotten used to that kind of, of, of money spending, I can understand why it would be difficult to start again because you have to learn how to run things very differently. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about something we started to talk about right before we were recording this, which is consistency. Consistency. <laughs> I had a band manager on here actually who talked about the fact that when he, the first question he asked himself is, of course, do they have it? But then the second thing he really looks for is that consistency i can't Mm -hmm. even say it but i find that to be incredibly hard how do you how do you do that how do you think about it why is it so important like i have to continually re-fall in love with even doing this show because it just i keep burning out it's funny i think that the only thing that's important about consistent consistency is being consistently evolving which is Mm. sort of a, a contradiction i think that on one of the panels i did a couple weeks ago in chicago um, I think it was Jocelyn Delk Adams, who's an is a cookbook author and a baker, was saying like, you know, what success is is just consistency. It's just doing something at a, at a at a high level over and over again. And I think it's easy to make that comparison with like food based businesses because it is so much right. about creating the same taste or flavor over and over again. But for me, working online, I think it's just about a consistency of quality. Quality. Uh, but man, is that hard. I mean, yeah. and I think you have to cut. I mean, there is not a single thing I read or consume that doesn't have an off day. Oh, and, yeah. But I kind of love that. Like, I, I kind of love when something has a bad week or a bad day and you just think like, oh, hey. Like, I was just in my hotel and I was watching The Ellen Show. Uh-huh. And I've watched The Ellen Show since, I don't know, like high school or whenever it first started or maybe I was in college. And it was not a great episode. I just thought like, man, she seems like she's phoning it in today. <laughs> and But I love Ella. And I had this moment of like, right. oh, she's a real person. Like right. she has real days where she's just not into it, but she still has to come to work. And who knows what her circumstances were in her real life that maybe affected that. But I like having moments where I realize someone, whether it's a brand or a show or a magazine, is a real, yeah. run by real people. What do you do like for you in, in, in Design Sponge? What are some of those moments? Can you share those where you've found yourself like, okay, I really just want to walk, either walk away or I don't want to do this or I feel like I'm stuck? I Up until two years ago, I, I was convinced I was going to close the website every year. Every year I would sit down and go, this is it. How am I gonna? How am I gonna make this transition? Because I've never wanted to sell the site. I was just like, I'm just gonna, you know, close the doors, say thank you, and move on, and let that be the end of the chapter. And then I sort of, I had a moment where I embraced the fact that I had sort of gotten more into business conversations, and I mm. thought like, I really love this. Like, let's see if I can make the website about this, and then kind of evolve. But, and then I just fell on my face because that, I mean, statistically, that is not the content that does well on our site. And huh. it was a really hard moment to realize. 
I had been very, very privileged and lucky that for the first 10 years of my site, all the things I was most excited about were the things that did the best on the site. So it led me to believe that I could just follow my passions and put any of that on the website (laughs) and people would inherently love it. And I mean, that's like blogger mistake 101 is believing that everything you like is what everybody else likes, but we all fall into that trap. And I did the same thing. And Caitlin, who runs the business end of my team, was like, hey, we need to talk about the fact that all these essays and business things you love aren't doing well. And so that was when I started like separating the things that really moved me and made me passionate into different places. So I started a podcast, I started working on the book, and it was really about sort of pivoting and not abandoning what I had Mm. built, but realizing that there was a place and time for the things that I was excited about and Mm. to not force something that wasn't everything I wanted it to be to maybe get pushed into, you know, a place that wasn't right for it. Yeah, not all of it needs to go in the lightning rod. Yes, yeah. exactly. And so and it's and it gave me a chance to start from zero again, which I hadn't done in, you know, 10 years. And that's an mm. important thing to feel is to feel that learning curve and I was a horrible interviewer and I never liked doing them on the site, but it was my favorite thing to read on the site. Mm. So, I started the podcast as a way of throwing myself in the deep end. I thought I'm going to do this show, I'm going to commit to like 100 episodes. And by the end of it, I will be a better interviewer. Were you? Yeah, I was. And it's now I now I love it. And yeah. I think like moderating these panels across the country for the last month has been the highlight of, of my work for the last few years. And I think the work I put into being a better listener and asking better questions has kind of come to fruition. But I had to throw myself in the deep end and really scramble for a while. Like those first few episodes were real, really rough. And so I think that I, I've kind of realized about myself that I like to I like to throw myself in the deep end and that's how I kind of get excited again about yeah. things. So yeah. whether it's a podcast or this book and being like two months, yeah, let's do it. Let's accept <laughs> that challenge. Um, so that that's become my new way of getting out of ruts is to just pick something I know I'll probably not be great at at first and then forcing myself to kind of get up that learning curve. Yeah, and yet again, you come back to this theme because these ruts are the hammer in the box, right? And and that's and when you're talking about these women and the, and the small businesses that they're starting, uh, or anybody really, like when you're starting something creative, it forces you out of the pattern in your life, and so therefore it is always disruptive, and there'll never be the balance that you originally probably had the premise around for all of these different people. And um, I wonder in your personal life how those stressors have affected and have you grown too, uh, both as an individual, but also in business. Um, I read that, and you've been talking about your wife, you used to be married. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had people on the show who were in heterosexual relationships and then went into a gay relationship, gay to heterosexual, people who've gone through gender transitions and talked about what those relationships have been like and even their kids who've Mm -hmm. gone through gender uh, transitions as mm-hmm. well. I mean, just everything um, across the gamut. So it'd be interesting because one of the things I heard is, is, and I don't want to take the cat out of the bag, but you, you've you managed that path in an interesting uh, way that might help other people who, who may have may be dealing with exactly the same thing. So do you want to share some of that? Yeah. I mean, life is change. <laughs> life And life doesn't <laughs> hand you change in like an easy to follow packet. It's not like, here's what's going to happen follow steps one, two, and three, and then you'll get through to the other side. That does not, at least in my experience, that does not happen. And I went through a divorce. Then, I mean, I, I came out. That was the reason I got divorced. And um, and then, and I did all of those things very publicly because they all happened pretty like halfway into my career at Design Sponge. And 
I had gotten so used to living publicly that it felt weird not to talk about those things. That's interesting. Um, but unlike other personal things I had discussed on Design Sponge, I waited a while. I waited two years, almost two years to, to come out publicly where I had come out privately to friends and family. Um, and, and that was a very conscious decision because any personal thing you put on the internet will be editorialized on whether or not you are like, I am not a like real celebrity. So those like, I'm not like on us weekly and are a billion people commenting, but in my tiny, tiny community of people, there are people who have an opinion and a very loud and vocal one on anything you do. Like mm. if people have children, people will say crazy, horrible things. And so I just thought like, you can't put this out here until you are a hundred percent ready to listen to what people are going to say about it. And so it kind of taught me to sit back and delay a little bit in mm. a way that was really important because not only was it important for me to remember that a not everybody cares about my personal life um but that b like that information isn't owed to anybody and i can wait until it feels like the right time and i waited until i frankly felt like it felt weird not to do it because i felt like i was hiding something and mm -hmm. i didn't want the message to be sent that i thought there was anything wrong about what i was going through i just wasn't ready to talk about it um, and so that's always been something I've handled really slowly and with compassion because I understand that, you know, discussing things that are really personal online for, for me, they don't just affect me. They affect the person I'm with, the people in my family, the people I work with. And so those tend to be things I discuss either with my team or like discussing with my wife. And that's just, it's a much sort of a bigger team discussion that happens now when personal things are made public. But I think the thing is everybody goes through these. Everybody goes, you know, through difficult um, relationship moments, whether they like are having kids or going through financial troubles. And they're very scary things to talk about publicly. And I understand that. But I am very happy that I kind of came into the blog world early on when we none of us knew to have boundaries yet. <laughs> we just all, <laughs> we're just putting it all out there. Right, and, yeah. you know, I, I mean, I started blogging right after like the um, live journal era of blogging where blogging really was a journal. Yeah. And so, it's like your diary in the yeah. yeah. And so I've always, I mean, I've always kept most of my personal life off the internet, but there are the big sort of broad strokes of my life are very much online. Um, and I'm glad that they are because I think when brands don't have a personal component, it's it's difficult to sort of build loyalty because I think people want to know about the people behind a company. And that's kind of what inspires me to do what I do is I'm much more fascinated by the people behind a design company and mm -hmm. they're path to doing what they do than I am the stuff they actually make. Mm -hmm. So I understand that that extends to my business for, you know, some percentage of that. Were you as open, because there's an openness quality to what you're talking about. It's like, I'm going to put, whether, however you time it, I'm going to put myself out there, whether it's my personal life or this story or whatever. And in the blog world, you're getting immediate feedback, which is, of course, not like any other medium at that time. Yeah. So... Did you feel as open, though, as a person before that world? Because I think I did read in an interview that you were talking about that you were pretty transparent through the journey of of figuring all these things out in your personal life with your former partner. Mm -hmm. um, did you feel that open kind of before that chapter? Yeah, too open. Ah. Too, I mean, I, I found all my boundaries by stepping over them, Oh, interesting. basically. Yeah. And I think that, I, I mean, I, I upset a lot of people by by not consulting them before discussing things publicly. And <laughs> and that's, I mean, I I regret very little because I think that for the most part, regrets, if they're just affecting you, they're lessons. But I think a lot of times, you know, when you live somewhat publicly, those lessons affect other people. Yeah. And so that's something I think about a lot now. And I, I live my life um, and the things I discuss publicly a lot differently. And 
And I think for a lot of bloggers who have been blogging for a long time, you feel as if, you know, this is your story to tell. So of, of course you can say whatever you want to say. But, you know, the real, you know, the reality of that is there are other people where that will trickle down and affect them. And so I think I think a lot more about those things now. But I still yeah. in general feel like the internet is an amazing place to connect with people. And a lot of times when you share these moments of vulnerability, whether it's personal or financial or whatever it is, there is going to be at least one other person out there who reads that and says, like, I thought I was the only one. And I think I sometimes live, you know, excited about those moments because I've had those moments reading other people's stories and I know how much they've meant to me. And it's not about inflating ego so much as making real connections because the internet can be so much about fake connections and like, oh, I follow this person and they follow me. So we're friends and this is some sort of digital currency. Right. And we're all smiling in this photo and we're all, yeah. everything's perfect. And it's, it's, it's sort of about like association as currency. And I don't, that, that holds no weight for me. And I feel like what I really care about are like the one-on-one -on -one moments that either happen in email or private conversations or in person where someone says like, thank you for admitting X, Y, Z, because that's something I've been scared to say out loud. And now I feel like I can do that. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm somebody who is, is fueled by being able to help or be a facilitator in some way and someone else like living more openly or living more happily or whatever that is. And that drives like every project I do. And it just happens to be in the creative community right now. But I know as a human being, that's what makes me get up and do things in the morning. Yeah. Is there something that you, and when you think about yourself today, is there, is there the you that has figured these things out and you're like, okay, kind of like you were talking about in the beginning of the book where it's like, all these people have figured this thing out. So there must be this secret pill of, of balance is there a you that's figured this out and then when you think about the you before that you're like oh or is it just these are a bunch of little hash marks on the way to just my life and i don't feel really that crazy different over these years because someone who's been on the show said actually i've i loved myself kind of and figuring it out all the way all the way through really i don't even notice the difference that much yeah i mean i don't think there's I definitely can't say that I loved myself in my mm. last decade. I mean, for a lot of complicated reasons. But mm -hmm. I think that I spent my first decade out of college basically trying to live my life based on external things. If people like, do they like me? Are they impressed by this thing? Is this doing well? Has it received awards? And then I turned 30. I came out. I got divorced. My whole life turned upside down. But I could not be happier that that happened because – I think I had to fall on my face to kind of realize like, hey, I was all the times I thought I was being great and perfect. I so was not being great and perfect. And, you know, it's it's good to try to be, you know, the best version of yourself, but it's not always going to happen. And if you hold yourself to that standard, you're going to hold everybody else to way too high of a standard as well. And so I think for me, my 30s so far and I'm halfway in are very much about embracing that I don't know even a fraction of as much as I think I know. And I, I was I mean I was just having lunch with my friend Anna and we, I was just saying we we're talking about starting families and my wife and I are kind of in that phase right now uh. and we were talking and she was like well you know do you feel like you're prepared and I was like I feel like I know that I don't know anything and that's as much as that's as far as I can get <laughs> that I can prepare and read books and like do research but I think you know once you're presented with real life moments and changes you just have to embrace that you're going to make mistakes and you're not going to know it all and right now in my life I feel like I'm in a place where I can give myself that space and that slack to to not know things. Well, Grace, you are 
one anti-fragile MF. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for being on Grow Big Always. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Grace Bonnie for making the trek all the way out to Mill Valley. And thanks to you guys for spreading the word about Grow Big Always, sharing it on social media, and for getting over to growbigalways.com and signing up for our weekly newsletter, which you can do on the bottom of every single page. Just give us your email. You'll get an alert every single time there's a new episode released. And you even have a chance to give some feedback or questions to guests that I've had on the show or the ones that are coming up. So as always, thanks for listening.